Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Let's read through this chapter together. It's 15 verses, and then we will pray. Titus 3, verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second abnimition, knowing that such a person is wrapped in sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zanus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. All who live with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace in our lives. We pray that we would understand it in a larger way, that it's current, it's present tense, that you love us, you've saved us, you wash us, regenerate us, renew us through the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray also that you'd help us to extend this grace to others. So Holy Spirit, would you bless our time We ask that you would do a great work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. The question before us is, what's next? The Apostle Paul's writing to Titus, a pastor similar to Timothy. Do you remember the task that was given to Titus? He was to head to Crete, this large island in the center of the Mediterranean Sea, because the churches were in chaos, or they lacked order. So he was going to bring things from disorder to order through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we covered that in the first two chapters. So, so now, now what's next? After the church is in a place where it's functioning the way that God would desire with godly leadership, how does this grace correlate into our daily lives? If you remember from the end of chapter 2, look at verse 11 and 12, was this great explanation of God's grace. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Grace is an active ingredient in our lives. Grace is teaching us because God is and has been so gracious to us, so now let's live godly in this life. So there's three themes in Titus 3, and the first is to respect authority. 
That's a real popular theme. I think a, a lot of people are going a long ways with that message of respecting authority. No, it's not a popular message in today's culture. But it's biblical, and it's very important for us to understand. Respect authority. And the second is remember God's grace. Remember what he has done in your life through grace, and then retain good works. Maintain good works. And so we'll be looking at authority, God's grace, and good works this evening. Verse 1, remember them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey to be ready for every good work. Respect authority, our first point this evening. It says, remind them to be subject to rulers. This is not a new teaching for the believers in Crete. We find that it's an instruction that is throughout Scripture, that God is a God of authority, even in creation. There was order to his creation. And in Romans 13, we're instructed about authority. It says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the rulers that exist are appointed by God. So there's no authority except which is appointed by God. God has appointed that authority. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So to the church of Crete is be ready to be submissive to authority. Be ready to obey and be ready for every good work. When we are surrendering to the authority that God has placed to our lives, we're putting ourselves under his hedge or umbrella of protection. It's really not an issue of the authority. It's an issue between me and God. And it isn't cultural to respect a boss, to respect a, an authority that God has has placed over us, but it is tremendously biblical. There's something about us that wants to buck against authority. You know, I remember being a young man and being a freshman in high school and playing baseball. I was a freshman. My brother was a junior, and the coach, his name was Coach Hines. Now, maybe he had something to do with ketchup. I'm not sure, but I didn't like Coach Hines, and there was one day where it kind of just came to a head. It was a spring day in southern Oregon. And he had all of the infielders line up. And they would throw the ball down this line and back. And then he would have all the outfielders line up next to them and do the same relay. And whoever finished first didn't have to run. But if you finished last, then you had to run around the whole baseball field inside of the, the, the baseball field. And I was an outfielder, and we kept losing every time to the infielders. Just, they were just killing us. And in my mind, as a 14-year-old, the reason we were losing is because infielders were, were trained to throw quickly, and outfielders more wind up for a long throw. So at, at that point in my life, that made sense to me. So in the middle of practice with all the other baseball players, all the other students, I, I challenged the coach. I was like, this is ridiculous, and I threw down my mitt, and I gave him my logic, right? So guess what happened to me? I got kicked out of practice, right? So he's like, you're, you're out of here, and kicked me out of, out of practice. And my, my older brother didn't really like it when things weren't going my way. I mean, he, he could beat me up, but nobody else. So then he let the coach have it, took the baseball, and threw it out into the parking lot. But for some reason, he didn't get kicked out of practice, so... But he was the best player on the team. Maybe he had something to do with it. But I'm not running the authority under the bus here. No. 
It was my issue. So here I am sitting in the dugout. And again, in my 14-year-old mind, I said, I will never play for him again. That was my, my decision. I'll finish out the season, but I'm not coming back next year. So I informed him of that after that practice as well. <laughs> he, he wasn't moved. He wasn't like, oh no, what's, what's going to happen to our baseball team? Because you're not playing, right? So little did I know that I had a God problem, not a Coach Hines problem. Okay? I wasn't surrendering to the authority that God had placed in my life. You may feel like you've got a boss problem, but you have a God problem. You're really not wrestling with God. You're wrestling, or you're not wrestling with your boss. You're wrestling with God because God has put the authority over you. As long as your authority is not asking you to do something that's not unbiblical or against God's character. So it says a lot, and and really pray about this for just a moment. It says a lot about who we are in Christ to be willing to surrender to authority. We should be the ones that are giving police officers respect because God has raised them up to to keep our, our community safe. If we're breaking a law, which we do sometimes, and we speed, we should have an attitude of respect towards the police officer as they're having to call us into account, you know, our community should say, ah, I love to hire believers because they're so respectful. You know, they're respectful to the authority that has been put in place. I do know this. If we want to stand out in our culture as light of Jesus Christ, it will happen through being respectful to the authority that God has put in place. There may be a few times in your life where your authority is asking you to do something that's contrary to God's word. And in that case, honor God. But most of the time, it's not a biblical issue. It's a personal preference issue. Now, I'd do it differently. I wouldn't do it this way. You may even be right. You may even have a better way to do it. And it's okay to say that in a humble way. But it's another thing than to let it go and say, you're the boss and I'm going to trust you. So now that I'm saying this, I'll probably be tested on this in the days to come. So or be looking for those opportunities. Be ready to be subject to the rulers and the authorities that God has put in place. Verse 2, here's the attitude in which we're subject to authority. To speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all authority to all men. It's our attitude. And first it says to not speak evil of anyone. Don't slander anyone. Sometimes when we're reading God's word, We get used to reading it, and because of that, it loses its impact. Is God really serious on this? Does he want us to not speak evil of somebody else, to not go around slandering? Why are these two things connected? Why is authority and slander connected? Because normally, the temptation is to slander our authority, right? What's the conversation at work over a cup of coffee? Man, the boss seems like he's in a bad mood today, you know? What, what's, what's wrong with the boss? He needs to get his act together, right? And so here, this is a real challenge from the Lord. Don't speak evil of anyone. It's a way to stand out and have light in this dark culture, but also to be peaceable. Peaceable is a general attitude of peace where we're not contentious. Am I going through my day just looking for a fight, looking to be contentious, just looking for authority to call me on something? You know? Then I'm going to throw my mitt down. (laughs) God wants us to be peaceable. 
have that gentle attitude of peace. Jesus was gentle. And then it goes on to say, showing all humility to all men. How do you think you would show humility to all men? I think it's understanding our own sin. Understanding God's grace to us. Not going through our days with arrogance or thinking that we're all that. That we're God's gift to the baseball team or God's gift to the neighborhood or God's gift to the company or God's gift to our particular church. What would the church do without me? What would the company do without me? What would the family do without me? There's a lot of me there, isn't there? There's an absence of humility. Humility is the ingredient or the character quality that allows us to submit to authority. Get pulled over by the police. You've done something wrong. You admit it. That takes humility, doesn't it? Okay, here it is. I've I've done something wrong here. The boss says, I know you would like to do it this way, but I want you to do it that way. Okay, we can do it. No problem. You're the boss. Humility. And so that humility is then what allows us to be subject to authority. And the next few verses really give us the fuel for humility. And it's number two, it's remember God's grace. So there's a flow in this chapter. The Holy Spirit's saying, look, I want you to surrender to authority through humility. Here's what's going to cause you to walk in humility, all of the grace that God has bestowed on your life. It says, we ourselves were once foolish disobedient and deceived. So he says we. He includes himself. This is speaking of all believers before we knew Christ as our Savior. This defined our life without Christ, that we were foolish. We still are foolish from time to time, but hopefully it's nothing compared to what our life was like before we knew Christ. Foolish is a lack of discretion. It's making bad decisions. Also, we were disobedient. Disobedience is different than being foolish. Disobedience is a willful, rebellious choice. I don't care. I'm going to be disobedient. So we were foolish, we're disobedient, but we're also deceived. We're tricked by the lies of the enemy and our own sinful flesh. So it results in something. It resulted in us serving various lusts and pleasures. What dominated our lives as unbelievers is our master was our sinful flesh. What we lusted after that dominated our lives is what we gave into time and time again, various, a lot of different categories, sexual and other categories as well. Aren't you thankful as a believer, as a child of God, that Jesus now rules your life instead of those various lusts? We've got to be reminded of that. We've got to reckon the old man dead. We've got a new master. It's not my lust anymore. I'm not just living for pleasure for sinful pleasure. God has, in his grace, taken us from that place. Here's our lifestyle. Here was our lifestyle before we knew Christ as our Savior. Living in malice, which is actually desiring for ill to happen to someone else. It's like saying, I hate you so much that I want something bad to happen to you. We were living in malice, and we're living in envy. Living in that place of saying, I want what belongs to somebody else. Hateful and hating one another in this lifestyle of hate. It's important, very important, to not live in condemnation, but we should never forget what our life was like before we knew Christ as our Savior. Because if we do, we don't have any humility towards other people. 
We tend to have a real short fuse towards authority. We have a real short fuse towards unbelievers. How, how could you? But if we realize the sin we still struggle with and all of the sin that God has forgiven us for, there's plenty of fuel for humility. Church, brother and sister in Christ, isn't there plenty of material for humility in our lives? All that God has saved us from, all that he's forgiven us from, his love that he has bestowed upon us, that's what produces a heart and a spirit of humility. In verse 4, but when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward all men appeared. So God gave us his kindness and his love while we were in that sinful state, while we were being ruled by various lusts. The kindness of God, the love of God appeared to us. Remember the grace of God. Celebrate the grace of God in his kindness and his love. How is God's love proven towards us? By sending his son. His son appeared. So you think of our darkest moment filled with sin and the son, Jesus Christ in human flesh, came to pay the price for our sin. Describing our salvation, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Not saved by works, but saved by mercy. God gets the credit. The credit goes to God. It's very clear here. It says, it wasn't because of your works of righteousness. You couldn't save yourself. We're wretched before God. But in his mercy, he saved us. By his grace, through the work of his son. So now I'm being honest about myself. I'm being honest about how I've been saved. So you may have a knucklehead boss that makes wrong decisions or bad decisions, doesn't lead in the the best way, but you go, you know what? I know how God has treated me and he's treated me with kindness. So now I can walk in humility before my authority. I love this last part of verse five. Just meditate upon it. Through the washing of the regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. This is God's continued work in our lives. God's grace doesn't shut off the moment that you get saved. It gets turned on and never turned off. God is currently, right now, tonight, through his work in our lives, he's washing us. Man, I need to be washed. My flesh is real. This sinful world is real. We we walk through the temptation that's before us. All the things that bombard our minds. and, And God, through his Holy Spirit, through his word, he washes us. He renews us. We're cleansed by the Lord. And then the regeneration. Regeneration speaks of rebirth. God rebirthed us. You're a new creation in Christ. You're not dominated by various lusts anymore. And then renewed of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians, it says to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In the Greek, the word is to be continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. Right now, the Holy Spirit is here. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us and is renewing us and desires to renew us. One of the privileges of being a believer is that the outward man perishes. We, we talked about that. But the inward man is being renewed day by day. So my body is getting older, but my spirit is getting more vibrant. And sometimes you meet people that are 90 years old, and they're a shadow of a shell in a physical body, but they got a spirit that's a giant in the Lord. They're filled with the love of God. Their their spirit's more vibrant than it's ever been before. And the spirit has the ability to renew us. And maybe tonight as you're taking in this study, you go, 
Lord, it's already been a long week and it's only Wednesday. I'm getting spring fever extra early this year. God, would you renew me? You know the challenges that I'm facing. Your grace saved me. And tonight, by your grace, God, would you renew me? Verse 6, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The Holy Spirit has been poured out abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Maybe your understanding of the Holy Spirit is if you're good, if you're faithful, then you get more of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a gift that comes in the new covenant of God's grace. When you trusted Christ, you were justified. The Holy Spirit came and lived inside of you, and God didn't give you the Holy Spirit in some small portion. He abundantly gave you the Holy Spirit. He poured it out. The Holy Spirit's been poured out on you abundantly. As we cry out to the Lord and say, God, I desire to be renewed by the power of your Holy Spirit, the Father's not going, I don't know. You know, I don't, I'm not really sure if I, I want to give the Holy Spirit to you. He's like, no, I've already given you the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's being poured out abundantly upon your life. In verse 7, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Having been justified by his grace. What does the word justified mean? It means to be declared righteous. It's a legal term by God. Some have described it this way, just as though I've never sinned. By his grace, by his unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor, God's riches at Christ's expense, he has completely forgiven us. He's completely justified. He's wiped out the debt. If you've ever experienced forgiveness that's similar to that, by a human, by another human relationship where they say, I forgive you, and they don't hold it against you. And you go and you ask several more times, and they say, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and you start to get it. Oh, they really meant it. They really have forgiven me. How much more so would God, and what a greater way. So, so God sees us as justified. He sees us as declared righteous, robed in his son's blood, robed in the righteousness of Christ. With being justified, we've become heirs to the hope of eternal life. What if you found out tonight you had some distant relative that you happened to be their heir? Some aunt that never married and didn't have kids, and so the money's coming to you and your siblings are like, sweet, this is great. I'm, a, I'm an heir to, to, this, to this money that is coming my way. How much more so according to the hope of eternal life? the hope of eternal life, the expectation of eternal life. In 1 Peter chapter 1, speaking to believers, it says we've got a reservation in heaven. Heaven reserved for you. We've got a team that's going to Uganda on March 22nd, a week away. You can pray for them. It's a big trip. They've got plane tickets, some reservations. They've got visas and passports. Lord willing, everything goes as planned. They're planning on going on a trip. How many times, if we're honest, in life, a plane ticket, a reservation for a vacation provides more encouragement to us than our reservation in heaven? That reservation in heaven is far more secure than any trip we may be planning to go on. Amen? So picture a reservation because of God's grace, because of your faith in Jesus Christ, if you're a believer, you have a reservation that can't be canceled out 
because of inclement weather. Isn't it a shame the East Coast is getting dumped on in snow while it's 70 degrees in Colorado? I mean, if they only knew, our population would double overnight, wouldn't it? All these flights have been canceled because of bad weather. Your reservation in heaven cannot get canceled because of bad weather, that hope of eternal life. So in these verses, 3 through 7, we remember God's grace. We celebrate God's grace. We think of our lives before Christ, all that God has saved us from, the way he's been gracious to us tonight, and that should do something to us. What's next? That should cause a light bulb to go on and say, I want to live out my Christian life in a way that people outside of the church can see that that's real, and that's my attitude towards authority. That's my attitude towards, towards my boss. This flows right into verse 8, and it says, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. So Paul's saying, this is faithful saying. You can take it to the bank. And I want you to affirm it constantly. Remember, he's writing to a pastor. He's writing to Titus. He says, I want you to encourage the church of Crete all the time on this. Do you ever feel like sometimes pastors are beating the same drum? Hey, get a new sermon. Find a new joke. You know, I've listened to you preach for 15 years. I've heard that one before, right? But there's a part of biblical teaching where there is a constant reminder God's word keeps coming back to things. And repetition is the mother of all teachers. And so here Titus is to affirm this constantly, teach this constantly, that those who believe in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. So number three, what's next? Retain good works. Notice the place of good works. Good works doesn't save you. You're saved by grace. There's no credit on us and all credit to God for his grace. So don't be confused. God's favor, his forgiveness, your justification, it's not earned or deserved. It's a gift of grace. But there is a place for good works. And we are to maintain good works. If we believe in God, maintain good works. What you truly believe will affect how you behave. Do you believe that? You know, if I really believe the forecast tomorrow is going to be a nice day, that's going to affect what I wear. If I don't have any faith in the forecast, all bets are off, right? If you believe something, if you really believe it, you'll behave. You'll then allow that to affect your behavior. So if I really believe that God loves me this much and loves the world this much, then it's going to affect how I behave. So God's concerned with good works. He says, I want you to maintain this. What are some things that you maintain? By the way, maintain is not a fun word. For most people, when in our culture, in our dictionary, when we think of maintain, we think of, this is an obligation that I've got to keep going. I have to maintain our vehicles. Do you guys like spending money on vehicles? I like my vehicle to run, don't get me wrong. I just don't want to have to invest money to keep it running. You know, when they tell you you need new tires, you're like, seriously? I just bought new tires. And, I, and I'm rotating them consistently. I'm going to hedge my bets, you know? I'll run some bald tires. That, that's, what, that's what the rebellion against authority wants to do, right? <laughs> and you go, okay, you know, 
I, I guess I gotta have good tires. Or here's 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 the money. Do, do tires ever go down in cost? Have you ever ever gone in and go, you know what? It's crazy. This this tire used to be a hundred dollars. Now it's eighty dollars. You know, never never goes down in cost. It's always a grouchy thing to to spend money on on maintenance. I gotta tell you, maintaining good works is not a grouchy thing. That's not the idea here. It's joy. It's the joy of the Lord where Christ's living water comes in us and overflows us where we say, I get to love on people. I get to love on believers. I get to love on unbelievers. And that's seen in my good works. And put in diligent effort to make sure that through our days and weeks, there's good works. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, why don't you turn with me there to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through Verse 15. Matthew 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Identity for us as believers, as disciples, you are salt, you are light. Not if you feel like it, you're salt. If you feel like it, you're light. Light penetrating the darkness, salt providing that ingredient, that taste, that preserving agent that's needed. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let's go ahead and just sing this little light of mine. If if you know it, just, no. You don't take a light and put it under a basket. You don't hide the light. So here's the key, though. How do we be salt, and how do we be light? Verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. There it is, good works. As we do good things to the glory of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, people see the glory of Jesus Christ. Simple things. You see your, your neighbor out struggling with something in their yard, you go help them. That's a good thing, thing to do. You know, you know that a coworker is is struggling and go through a difficult time. Pick them up a $20 gift card to Chili's. Get them a card to say, I know you're going through through a challenge. It's probably hard to even find time to get food. Here you go. Take the time to listen. That's a, that's a good work. That's all consuming in our lives. You get home and the dishwasher needs to be unloaded. That's a good work. Do it out of love for Jesus Christ to build up your family. Do you ever have those days where you're just not all there? Maybe you didn't sleep well, or you wake up and you're like, you know, I'm already not having a good day. I'm already grumpy. And, and my flesh loves to give me then a license of why I don't need to serve God that day. And then that quickly turns into, well, everybody should serve me. Every, you know, my family should realize I didn't sleep well today, and they should, they should cater to me right? And it's a real discipline in our relationship with the Lord to say, no, I'm going to maintain good works. The joy of of seeing God work 
the joy of being able to, to serve others. Have you ever done something you really didn't feel like doing and you didn't think if it would have a lot of impact and you did step out in faith and choose to do that, that good work and then all of a sudden God used it in a way that blew your mind? The results is not up to us, but the obedience is. Maybe as you look at your life, you go, you know, there were seasons where I was really diligent to make sure that I was serving the Lord in my actions with good works. But for some reason, that's fallen by the wayside. Or maybe in your Christian walk, you've never seen the importance of it. You go, man, I'm saved by grace, so it really doesn't matter how, how I live. It's hard for me to artic- articulate this in words, but what I picture in my heart and my mind is the joy of a loving father saying, you get to work with me. And that's grace, right? God doesn't need us. But he's saying, I want to use your life. So step out in faith in loving people and sharing the truth and doing good works. And there's nothing that brings us more joy than working with our father, of laboring in his field, of seeing, seeing him work. I love working with my kids. You know, it's, it's fun to do projects with, with my kids. Wyatt loves tools. I'm not the best with tools, but I give it, give it a fair share be underneath the sink trying to fix, fix a leak. And man, talk about plumbing bringing out a temptation of the flesh. It, it, you know. And there's why he's right down in there underneath the sink and he wants to know how it works and you can tell his, his mind works me- mechanically. There's so much joy in that. There's, there's so, much, m- more, so much fun in that. You know, I think of times with my own dad of working out in the yard and a lot of times that's more fun than Six Flags or you know, more fun than going to the park. And, and God's saying, look, I'm in the business of loving people. I'm in the business of changing people's life. So be salt and light. So maintain good works. And I know we oftentimes are just so overwhelmed in our own lives, it's hard to look outside of that. But that's where the faith comes in. So let's go back to Titus and look at verse 9. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. This is a distraction to grace. This is a distraction from good works. And it's foolish disputes, arguing over genealogies, striving endlessly over the minutia of the law. You pick your topic, but there's some discussions that are dead in the water that are going nowhere. And avoid those. Don't give them the pleasure of fighting. Walk away. This is crazy. But you hear, heard it here first. Don't comment on their post. Have the discernment to go, this is going to be an endless dispute that no one can win. I don't have to be the one to set them right. If there's an opportunity to have a real discussion, by all means, go for it. But there's some disputes that just simply need to be avoided. In this endeavor to be salt and light in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and with our families, someone's going to try to bait you. Someone's going to try to take you into a fight that has nowhere to go and choose to walk away. Choose to not respond to the text. You can do that. You really can, you know? It'll probably drive somebody crazy. They'll be like, (laughs) and finally, they might actually talk to you. They'll say, did you get my text? Yeah, I got your text. You know, you don't have to answer. You don't have to enter into that fight. We got to get together and meet. Sorry, I'm busy. I can't meet. Well, when are you available to meet? I'm never available to meet on that topic. This may be some surprise you, but there's some meetings that I never have, you know, 
And I'll, I'll just say, look, I'm not going to meet with you about that because I can tell we're going to head down a rabbit trail that's going to waste everybody's time from good works, right? So there is a time to avoid those conversations. In verse 10, reject a device of man after the first and second abdomition, knowing that such a person is wrapped in sinning, being self-condemned. Thank you. And as we look at the health of a church, is there will be those that come in and try to divide. The knowledge of God's grace is happening. There's edification that is as taking place. And Timothy's job as a pastor is to say, okay, warn him twice, and then you need to reject him because he's dividing the body. Now, to share my heart with you, it's definitely the most destructive thing that can happen to our church or any church family is someone that wants to come in and deceive and to divide the church. In Proverbs 6, verse 13 through 15, it talks about the things that God hates. He says, he winks with his eyes, he shuffles his feet, he points with his finger, perversity is in his heart, he devises evil continually, he sows discord. Therefore, his calamity shall come upon him. Suddenly, he will be broken without remedy. Devises evil continually and sows discord. Sometimes we can be drawn into this without even realizing it. We can become an instrument that divides the body of Christ instead of building up the body of Christ. Something we want to be, be careful about. In verse 12, when I send Artemis to you or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nepopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Send Zanus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. In these few details, we see the value of a team. We see that Paul's never doing ministry alone, that God delights in using the body of Christ, and he has these men that are surrounding him. Verse 14, and let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. Second exhortation for good works. I want you to maintain good works, meet urgent needs. Do you see urgent needs around you? Meet them so that you're not unfruitful. Verse 15, and all who are with me greet you, greet those who love us in the faith. So Paul's traveling with others, they greet you, and then he sends greeting to everyone that's in the faith. So here's a few application questions tonight to, to consider. Pray these through with me. First is, do I obey the authority that God has placed over me? Now be honest. Do I obey the authority that God has placed over me? Are you one of those that traditionally struggles with authority? It's not just a personality trait. It's not because you're Irish, you know? I got a temper and I struggle with authority. It's just the way we, we've always been. It's a choice of the will. Really look at this chapter. Go, okay, God, you've dealt so graciously to me. Poured out your kindness upon me. So I'm going to choose to come under authority as long as they're not asking me to do things that are dishonoring to you. If you do, you're coming underneath God's protection. You're coming underneath his umbrella. God says he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Make that choice and then follow through. And I'm sure for some, you're dealing with some difficult authority right now in your life. You know, they're not necessarily sinful or asking me to do things that don't 
honor God, but they are extremely difficult to deal with. It may be that they're God's divine instrument of sanctification in your life, in my life. Say, okay, Lord, I'm going to let you deal with them, but I'm going to come under the authority that you place in my life. I think in encouraging young people, if you're a high school student, college student, really reflect on this truth to come underneath authority and God will bless you. If you have influence in younger people's life, teach them the importance of coming under authority. It's something we've really lost. And then, am I aware of the grace that God has and is giving to me? May God give us a fresh view of the grace that he's poured into our lives. Where was my life before Christ saved me and got a hold of me? What dominated my life? How is God currently being gracious to me? Aren't you so thankful that God didn't give us what we deserve today? As believers, Lord, thank you that you didn't give me what I deserve, that I'm in Christ and I'm justified. If I am meditating upon God's grace, if God's grace is true, is it producing humility in my life? Humility in my life. Do I go through life with arrogance or or humility? If I've received grace, it should be humility. And then do I see the importance of good works? I think a lot of times for us as believers in the new covenant, we kind of poo-poo good works, for lack of better terms. We go, I'm not saved by works, so it's really not, doesn't really matter, so who who really cares? But God's saying it's important. He uses good works to glorify his son. It's how people know that we're salt and we're light, and it's joy. We get to Work with our Father. The Father gets to to use us. So do we see the importance of good works? Is there something that God's placing on your heart tonight? Maybe prior to coming in, and we've kind of been wrestling with it. Maybe it's in the way of honoring a parent. Maybe it's in a way of blessing a spouse. Maybe it's in a way of speaking encouragement to a child, reaching out to a neighbor, serving others, giving in a particular way. Just simple act of kindness that reflects the the glory of God. Step out in in those good works. How many things do we maintain in our life? I'm going to make sure I answer my email, make sure to get to this appointment, going to get the car maintenance done. What if we took out our calendar and said, you know, this week I want to make sure that I do some good works for the glory of God. What what are some ways that God would maybe want to, to use our family? That sounds like a lot more fun than going to the gym, you know? You ever get tired of just focusing on yourself? Like, man, it's a lot of work to focus on myself. Myself is going to be there tomorrow, right? So God help me, free me up to allow me to do good works. Let's stand together and let's pray, pray this in. Hey gang, it's 735. I gave you the gift of time tonight. <laughs> Small miracle. Going to pray quick so I don't ruin it and end early. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your word. God, we just pray as we celebrate communion that you would remind us afresh of the grace that you have and are pouring into our lives. Help us to respect authority, to speak evil of no one. God, and would you just cause good works to abound in our lives through your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.